this year we're going to be looking at a series out of 1 Corinthians and um, it's probably going to take a couple of years, all right? So that's the way I like to preach. We're going to preach through the whole book. We're going to try and look in detail what we can learn. And for me, Corinthians is a fantastic and apt book, in particularly where we are now in our culture and what our culture believes and what our culture tries to encourage us to embrace as lifestyle. Corinthians is a powerful book to speak into a whole lot of issues um, as we go through it. And so... This morning, I'd like just to do a very basic overview to give you an idea of what Paul talks about and why he talks about what he talks about. And then we're going to look at each section in detail as we go forward. And in addition to that, we will break up the series with other things that we look at during the course of the year. So we'll, we'll do it in chunks and give you a rest, all right? But I, I do want to encourage you that in your devotions that you'll read 1 Corinthians, that you'd ask God to speak to you out of 1 Corinthians, that you would make it part of your devotions so that as we go through and I preach and other people preach, you will have a reference point to think for yourself about what God is saying to you and what He wants to say to you out of this book. All right, so I've called it the way of love. And that's specifically the reason for that is because one of the great themes of Corinthians is love and what love looks like and how we can show love and live out love in our lives and in the church community. And so we're going to start not in Corinthians, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 18. Yes, so if you've got your Bible on your phone or if you'd like to look at the screen, um, what, uh, this is, describes Acts chapter 18. Paul, as you know, has various missionary journeys that he goes on. Over the course of his life, he goes on three. And uh, this is part of his second missionary journey when he plants the church in this place called Corinth. And this is what it says. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the emperor at that time, and there are various reasons for why Claudius did that. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, so he didn't tent make anymore, but he preached full-time, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And see, so he has a key moment in Paul's ministry, and he stops just preaching in the synagogues, and he goes to unsaved pagan Gentile people, Greeks predominantly. Then it says, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Tarsus Justice, a worshiper of God. And Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the, Christi uh, the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in the city. Isn't that a wonderful comfort when you Paul knew persecution in the most profound way and here God's promise to, to him is don't worry, I'm with you. I have many people in the city, keep on preaching. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So now Paul is writing this letter a little bit later in his life. He's now moved on to, uh, to uh, Ephesus and he writes back to this church that he knows really well. Uh, as you can see, he'd lived there for about 18 months. We think from about uh, the autumn of AD 50 to about the spring of um, AD 52. And Corinth was a center for commerce, a center for travel, a center of culture. 
And it was a strategic place for Paul to plant a church. And that's why he goes there. And I said to you, this was part of his second missionary journey. If you know Greece, he had been in Thessaloniki, in Thessalonica. And now he moves down to Corinth and he plants this church in Corinth. And after Athens, Corinth was the second most um, vibrant intellectual city of ancient Greece. And it prided itself in its education, its philosophy, and its wisdom. And Corinth was also, at the same time, famous for its immorality. Um, it had many temples to the ancient Greek and Roman gods where people worshipped. And one of the gods was Epaphrodite, Epaphroditus, the goddess of love. And people that worshipped her in the temples, it involved ritual prostitution in the city. And there were hundreds of women that were, were prostitutes in the city. And so uh, Corinth really was a place like where we go to Cambodia. It was a place for sexual tourism in the ancient world. People would travel for, from all over the place to go and sleep with the prostitutes in the temples as an expression of worship to Artemis, um, um, Epaphroditus, the goddess of love. This is the context that Paul finds himself in. And it says in um, Acts chapter 18, Paul, he lived and he worked there and he knew the city inside out. And as he talked to Jesus, uh, talked about Jesus to people that he was working with, many came to faith and this church community is formed. But as you can see, the kind of place that Corinth was, it wasn't an easy place to birth a new church. Uh, but after a couple of years, Paul moves on, like I said, he moves on to uh, Ephesus, and about AD 53, while he's in Ephesus, and he's, we know the Ephesian letter is another brilliant letter, people start feeding back to him that things are not going well with the church in Corinth. And in some ways, the church in Corinth was Paul's best church, and it was also his most troublesome church that gave him the most problems. And he can rejoice in chapter 1. We'll have a look at it in verse 5. He, he rejoices and he says, I rejoice that you do not lack any spiritual gift. This was a church full of gifted people that loved the Holy Spirit. Then there was an expression of the, the grace of God in the church, but they were also at the same time, the church was plagued by all sorts of problems. And that's why he writes back to them to try and encourage them. And we think he wrote to them about AD 55, just before Pentecost. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We know that because in this letter he says, in my former letter I wrote to you, but we have lost that letter. So we think there were probably three letters to the Corinthians, but only two have survived. So the f this first letter is actually a response to a letter that he had already um, written to them, but it's been lost to us, and we don't know what he said in that first letter. And the reality of this kind of church that is very gifted but very troubled, troubled is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 14, where P Paul says this. He says, you are in danger of becoming a congregation of the insane. <laughs> he says it as bluntly as that, and I'll, I'll read it to you. He, he says, uh, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? He's not, we'll look at it in detail. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit being manifested. He's talking about how they are behaving together in the congregation that it just seems completely out of control. And he's saying when people come into that context, they think these people are crazy. They are insane. And so Paul says, don't become a church like that. And that's why he writes the letter, one of the things he addresses to them. So this letter is broken into five main sections with a final greeting. And I want to just summarize in a couple of sentences each section to you. So as you read, you can start to read with a little bit of focus. Um, and what Paul does in each of these sections, he speaks about the problem. He says, this is the problem. And then he addresses that problem with something of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And then thirdly, he says to the Corinthians, can you see that you're not living in light of what the gospel says into your life? So he does three things. The problem, the gospel, you're not living according to the gospel. And that's how he addresses each of those problems. And for me, this is a beautiful way that we can learn to live as Christians. We're not called to live by rules. Do you know that? So many people think that the Christian life is just a moral code. You do this, you don't do that. As long as you're a good person, it's okay. 
Jesus was just a good guy with good things to say. And if you just listen to the good things that Jesus said and live a good moral life, that's okay. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus comes into your heart and transforms your life, transforms your values, transforms everything about how you see the world. And as you live from that place, it changes everything. And you don't even worry about the rules anymore because you're not, you're not focusing on the rules. You're focusing on Jesus and his grace and his love for people and how he loves you. And it transforms you from the inside out. That is the gospel. It's a completely different way of viewing life. And that's what Paul drives it as he speaks to these Corinthians. And so this book really for me is a, really about learning to think about every area of our lives and how the gospel affects every area of our lives. That's our relationships, our family, our community, how we work things out in our lives through the lens of the gospel shining into our lives in every area of our lives. And Paul chooses five things that he addresses. And the first is this. The first thing Paul says is a problem in this church is disunity. My, 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 welcome home to the UK. Pouring with rain. It's quite loud, isn't it? Do you need to turn me up a little bit? Turn the rain down, exactly. Um, so there's this problem with disunity in the church. So as I said, Paul planted the church, was there for about two years, moved on. And after Paul moved on, other people came through the church, including Peter and Apollos, who were two of the other leaders of the early church. And so what started to happen in this church was that people picked their favorite leader. They picked their favorite preacher, and they became groupies of that preacher of that teacher, and they started fighting with each other and saying, oh, I like Apollos. No, I don't like Apollos. I like Paul. No, I don't like Paul. He's short and he can't see very well and he's, he's too intellectual. We don't like Paul. We like Peter, the rock, the loud, boisterous personality. And so they, became, they started fighting with each other in the church and they started speaking badly of other people in the church that didn't like the preacher that they liked, that didn't like the leader that they liked. And so how does Paul respond? Well, he's rather sarcastic and sharp. Paul can be very sarcastic and sharp. And he just says, you have to be kidding me. You have to be absolutely joking that you think the church is about a popularity contest, that it's about leaders competing for the greatest amount of people. You have to be joking. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus as Lord. And he's the center, and actually every single servant leader is that, a servant of the people. And we would do well in our culture that is so fascinated with celebrity, and I have to say celebrity pastors and mega churches, and how many followers you get, and how well your worship team does, we would do well to see that actually every single leader is a servant of Jesus and that we learn to put Jesus back at the center of the church and not personalities and not great preachers. Amen? Come on. It is about Jesus. And we're all simply servants of Jesus, the great King. So as you read the first four chapters, you will see Peter, uh, Peter, Paul unpacks what the church is, why we gather as a, as a church, what it means as a church community to be church together. And as you read the first four chapters, focus on those things. Secondly, in chapters 5 to 7, Paul addresses problems about sex. All right? Now we have a number of specific issues in the church. First of all, there's this guy in the church in Corinth that's sleeping with his stepmother. Secondly, there's a whole bunch of people still worshiping in the pagan temples and sleeping with the temple prostitutes, right? And they're in the church. They're pagans that have got saved out of that. And thirdly, Paul says, that's not even the, the main problem is that there are actually people in the church that say that's okay. Because actually, you know, the grace of God is upon us and he forgives us for our sin. And it's okay, you know, God's grace covers everything. So uh, we're free in Christ and we can, do, we can do these things and it's not a problem. It's absolutely fine. Paul says it's absolutely not fine. And why does he say that? Well, 
He's trying to respond to the Greek thinking of his day. He's trying to respond in particular to Greek uh, philosophers that spoke about the body as being separate from the spirit. And that actually your spirit is pure and can know God, and your body is fallen and is of no use whatsoever. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You see, because it doesn't count. What really counts is your spirit, that your spirit and your soul can know God. And Paul is addressing this this issue head on. And he says, it absolutely does matter what you do with your body, because your body and your spirit is one. There's a unity. We are not cut up into little pieces. And how many of us are learning now that it really does matter to your body what you eat, how much you exercise, how your, your, your mindset and your, your, your sense of well-being is affected very practically by what you do with your body. Yes? And so Paul is saying, you can't separate out your body from your spiritual side. You're, you, you are one. The one affects the other. And so he says, remember, and this is where he, he addresses the gospel. He says, remember, Jesus died for your sins, including those relationships that get broken through sexual misconduct. So if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim that Jesus is now Lord of your life, sexual integrity is one of the main ways in your life that you respond to Jesus' love and Jesus' grace. Sexual integrity in when you are courting someone. Sexual integrity when you are married. Sexual in- integrity in all the difficult times of your life as you go through life as a married cu- couple. Sexual integrity matters. It's a primary way that you show the love and grace of God in your life. Paul reminds him of that. And so he says, it's not okay that you sleep with a prostitute. It's not okay that you actually are into pornography. It's not okay that I've heard this taught from the pulpit. If you're in a committed relationship, if you engage to someone, you can sleep with them because you're really, or you're already um, showing your commitment to them in the fact that you're engaged. Paul says, it's not okay. The primary way you show God's love and grace in your life is through your sexual behavior. It really, really does matter to God. Secondly, he points it to this fact and he says, your body, once you've come into relationship with Christ, your body is no longer your own. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body has been redeemed now by Jesus and it belongs to him. And one day it will be glorified. And because your body is now being bought by Jesus, you take care of your body. You take care of how you conduct yourself sexually, what you eat, how much you exercise, because your body is a temple that belongs no longer just to you. It belongs to Jesus. And secondly, I'm getting distracted, but let me say it anyway. Secondly, in marriage, God says, your body doesn't just belong to you. It belongs to your wife. And it belongs to your husband, if you're vice versa. And so take care of yourself. Come on. Take care of yourself for the sake of your spouse that you can be around to see your grandchildren and love your grandkids and not die prematurely of a heart attack because you haven't taken care of yourself. Come on. It really does matter what we do with our bodies, says Paul. And we are integrated beings. There's a unity that God calls us to in how we live spiritually, which is expressed directly in how we live physically and in this particular area, he's saying sexually. Now, you see that I said this already, but let me just reemphasize: the Greek intellectuals didn't like this this idea of um, of the body and the spirit being unified, and so they they believed that after death, your body died, but you kind of existed as a spirit. And many people still think like this today. They believe that we are just spirits when we die. And we kind of, we just, you know, like Casper the Friendly Ghost. When I was growing up, I'm showing my age now, there was a comic book called Casper the Friendly Ghost. And Casper looked like an elongated um, speech bubble. And he would waft around smiling and kind of doing good. And there were some bad ghosts and he was the good guy. And and that's a lot of how people still think it's going to be after we die. We'll just be like these ghost-like clouds that waft about in eternity somehow. No, says Paul. We believe in a physical resurrection. 
we believe that our bodies are going to be resurrected. And that's why it's very important that you take care of your body and that you are pure in, in, in your sexual behavior because your body is going to be redeemed one day. Just as Jesus' body was, was physically raised from the dead, you too will be raised from the dead in a physical body. Remember, says Paul, you're not just going to be like some spirit wafting around in eternity. You are going to be co-ruling the, the, the world again in a new heaven and a new earth in your resurrected, glorified body with Christ. If you've never heard that before, my friends, you haven't heard the gospel. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming, a redeemed earth, a redeemed culture where there's no, there's no kind of climate change and no pollution, a perfect world that is going to be coming again. And in that you reign and rule with Christ in your resurrected, glorified body. That's what Christians believe. And so Paul says, take care. And he takes on the, the, the thinking of, of his day and says, it's not what God has for us. And so I want to challenge you in terms of your sexual purity as individuals. Whether you are courting, whether you are married, whether you've been married for 30 years like I have, that in your life you are giving yourself to pleasing God with your body in how you conduct yourself sexually. Amen. Come on. Oh, no, we're all a bit nervous now. We don't talk about sex in the church, right? Of course we do. Third, third, Paul says there's another problem. It's got to do with food in, the, in, the local ch in this church. It's not about food preferences. It's not about like I, I like Italian and I like sushi and he's not talking about that. He's talking about meat that has been sacrificed in the pagan temples to other idols to the Roman and Greek gods. And so what had happened, there was a split in the church in terms of how this was to be worked out between people that were, had a Jewish background and people who had a Gentile background. And again, Paul appeals to a core idea in the gospel to take this on. And he says, our allegiance in the church is primarily, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord. He's the great king. We serve him with all of our hearts. And so if we're in a situation where there's meat that's been offered to some other god, like in a pagan festival, for example, and there are people that are watching you at that point and conclude that if you eat the meat, it means that you th they, they think you can worship Jesus and these other gods. Paul says, no, no, no. If you're in that kind of situation, don't eat the meat. Okay, you are free in Christ, absolutely. You are a new creation. You are a new human in Christ. He's changed you from the inside and you're completely new. doesn't matter about the, the, the um, food being sacrificed to idols. But if you are misleading someone by eating that and they can see you, don't eat the meat. All right? And then he quickly qualifies and says um, that, uh, like I've mentioned already, that all animals are clean anyway, and idols are just pieces of wood and stone. And if there's no one around to watch you eating the meat, go ahead and eat the meat. You are free in Christ. You can have a mat these matters of conscience are yours to debate and to decide what you want to do. But what does he say? It's the primary thing that makes it okay in one situation to eat the meat and not okay in one situation to eat the meat. Or it's okay to drink alcohol in this situation and it's not okay to drink alcohol in this situation or whatever it is. What does he say is the primary driver? It is simply love. Simply at the core, he appeals to love, and he says this, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us and died for us, we are called to love other people. And so sometimes love denies itself for the sake of others. Sometimes love denies the freedom that it has for itself to do something for the sake of other people because it's better for them that I don't do this, says Paul, but I'm free to do all things. Are you with me? And so that's what Paul appeals to right at the center of his message in those chapters is the love of God, the core of the gospel. And just as Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, so too we are called to love others and give ourselves to others. And that means sometimes that the freedom that we have in Christ, we curtail that freedom so others are not confused and we show Jesus to other people. All right? Fourth. So that's in chapter 5 to 7. 
sorry, chapter 8 to 10. And uh, as you read those chapters, uh, I encourage you to think about those things. Fourth, in chapter 11 to 14, Paul says, I've got, some, I've got some problems with your meetings, the way that you are together when you are worshiping. And what the issue seems to have been here is that there were people in the meetings that had these incredibly powerful spiritual experiences in the meeting. And so they'd speak out in tongues in the meeting or um, they'd start to share a word from God and they would be speaking and someone else would interrupt them. And it was all a little bit chaotic and a little bit distracting for people who had come to hear the gospel. And so Paul is not against the Holy Spirit. He's not against the move of the Spirit. He's not against speaking in tongues. He's not against any of those things. What he's saying is, is that it's just a bit chaotic, that there's no sense of order or anyone coordinating it, and actually that's the problem. It's that you, there's no sense of people are worshiping together. It's just everybody doing their own thing. And as, as Paul uh, speaks about this, he says, in fact, I've, I speak in tongues more than any of you. So Paul's not against any of the gifts of the Spirit. He loves the Holy Spirit. In fact, in another place, he says, he's, he's, he's talking about the visions that he's had, that he was taken up to, to the third heaven, and he saw these incredible visions, and God showed him many incredible things, and he boasts, in, in some ways, boasts indirectly about that. So he was a spiritual man who loved the work of the Spirit. He's not talking about that. He's talking about how they are together in their meetings and how they conduct themselves when they are together. And so... In addition to this, this is why he says this is such a, a weird mix, because there's all this expression of the Holy Spirit in the church, and at the same time, there's not much love in the church. Isn't that interesting? That you can have all the expression of the gifts and not much love. And why do we know there's not much love in the church? Because we know this, the Corinthian church, they treated the poor badly in their church. They treated the poor badly. Secondly, there was rivalry. We've already seen that they were competing. There were factions in the church. Thirdly, some of the Christians in the church were taking each other to court to settle their differences. So Paul says, yeah, you're all very spiritual. That's wonderful. Practically, not much love here. Not much love for the poor when you disagree with each other. Not much love. That's a problem. And then we have, to, we have to address that. There's this great con contradiction in the church. And so he, he points them to the reason why we get together as, as believers. And he says, first of all, the church is a place where all of God's people gather. And God works through everybody by his spirit. And that happens in a unified way. And so he has the deal. He develops this beautiful metaphor that we know so well. What does he say? He says, the church is a body. And you might be the eye, you might be the ear, you might be the wrist, you might be the foot, but the body needs you with your gift to do exactly what your gift is so that the whole body is built up in Jesus. And that's the key phrase in, this, um, in this, these chapters is the building up of the church. And so Paul says this, the highest point of you, your gathering together is love for Jesus. And so your gift must be offered in the sense of it's love for Jesus. So my gift must add into the mix so that people can see that Jesus is being loved. You with me? And so that's why we're trying to place people in the church where the gifts are, that the singers are singing, that the, 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 the hospitality people are hospitalitying. That the, that the children's ministers are ministering to the children. That the welcomers are welcoming. That the gifts that people are being had are being offered up in love. And as they're offered up in love for Jesus, the whole thing works together and the whole church is being built up. And Paul says, don't complain that you're not an eye if you are an ear. Don't say, oh, I wish I was a singer and you can't sing two notes together. No, if you're not a singer, it doesn't matter. Just do what it is that you are good at. Uh, believe me, grace needs to flow in the right way. Isn't that right? When the, good, when the musicians that are good musicians sing and play, what happens? Grace goes towards Jesus. And when it, when, when it happens, that, that the, I'm just picking on the musicians because we've talked about this, all right? When, when the musicians don't play well or sing out of tune, which way does grace flow? <laughs> it flows the other way. 
And we're saying, oh, God, please help them. Please help them. I don't know what's wrong, but there's something wrong. It's just, it sounds a bit funny. Isn't that true? That's why do what your gift is. Give your whole heart to how, the area that you're gifted in so that grace flows the, whole, the right way and the whole church is built up and encouraged and strengthened. Come on. This is good news. This is what Paul says. And at the center of that is the, the love of God. And so I put it to you that this, this is what Paul is saying, that the love of God compels each person in, their meet, in the meeting to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. And Paul applies that here to the problems that the Corinthians have. Um, so some of them thought that the gathering of believers was just for everyone to get together, have an ex intense spiritual experience, get a chance to speak. Everyone just... Do, 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 do. And Paul's saying, no, I'm a big fan of that, but actually there needs to be unity. There needs to be a sense of God directing by His Holy Spirit. There must be order. And rather we have too many contributions than too few, but there must be order. That's what Paul is saying. And if, if my contribution is distracting from God finding Jesus, from, from people finding Jesus, then I should stop and wait for another time. And if I don't do that, I'm loving myself more than I'm loving the church of God's people. And the last problem that Paul addresses is the issue of the resurrection. And I'm doing well. I'm on time this morning. I will be finished by 11.30. You see, the resurrection is actually the ultimate hope of Christian faith, isn't it? And again, because there were pagan Greek people that had been converted to Christianity that were f coming from a Greek background where they didn't really even believe in the resurrection of a physical body. Like I said to you, they just believed we would be spirits kind of wafting around after we died. Some people in the church that came from that background said, well, no, no, actually the resurrection doesn't really matter. Uh, you can be a Christian and believe in Jesus without believing in the resurrection. It's, it's so fascinating to me because I was thinking about it this week. I think, you know, the challenge for the church in the 21st century is not so much from outside the church. It's really within the church. I hear so many people saying these things that preach, preach a form of Christianity that says you don't need to believe in the virgin birth. You don't need to believe in the resurrection. You don't need to believe in any of these things, the miraculous. You don't need to believe in these things. You can still be a Christian and believe, not believe those things. I think Paul would say absolute rubbish. Those things are integral to the Christian faith. I think Paul would say you have a form of godliness and yet you deny the power of God. That's what I think Paul would say. And so we have to be sharp. We have to focus on the right things and encourage people in the right area. And so he's taking on these Greek intellectuals and he responds to this thing of the resurrection in the most forceful and strong way. He says, the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. If you do not have the resurrection, you might as well stop being a Christian right now. If you, are, if you do not believe in the resurrection, you are still dead in your sins. What Jesus has done for you is of no value whatsoever, and his death is of no value to you if there's no resurrection. That's what Paul says. And he says, we believe in the resurrection because hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive in his physical body after being crucified and killed by the Romans. They saw him alive, and his disciples saw his body physically, and they touched it, and they put their finger in his side and in and his wrist, and he ate fish with them. It was a physical body, a glorified physical body. And he, Paul says, that is why we believe. And Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, face to face. That's why he says we believe in the resurrection, because it's a physical resurrection that happened. It is, it is absolutely central to the gospel. And if it's not, we are still dead and sin in our sin and selfishness, and we are simply of all people to be pitied the most for believing in Jesus if the resurrection is not real. And so Paul then ultimately says that, and then he points to the future, and he says that Jesus' resurrection ultimately points to the victory that we have over evil, the victory that we have 
over death, that it's a source of power in our lives right now in the presence, and it's a promise of a future hope that we have for everyone that believes by faith. And it's because, I say to you this morning, it's because of the resurrection that you, we have a reason to be unified in the church around Jesus. It's because of the resurrection that we have a motivation to live a sexually pure life. It's because of the resurrection of what Christ has done. It's because of the resurrection that we have a source of power in our lives for loving other people that are different from us. Loving other people more than ourselves. For saying, my gift I will hold back so other people can prosper in the church. When it's appropriate, I'll use my gift. That's the source of the power to do those things. It's not our cleverness. It's not our self-discipline. It's because we believe that there was a dead person called Jesus who took upon himself the, the sins of the world and now he's alive and resurrected and he's a source of eternal power for all those who believe by faith. That's what we believe. It's this, the resurrection is absolutely profoundly key to our lives as Christians. And so I put it to you that the gospel that needs to affect every area of our lives and a lens through which we see every, hour, every area of our lives is not just moral advice. It's not just 10 rules to live by so you can be a good person. It's not a recipe for private personal devotion. Oh, you know, I love Jesus in private, but I don't speak about it to anyone. No one, no one in work sees that I'm a Christian, you know, because it's private. It's private. I'm a private person. <laughs> No, I'm afraid that's not the gospel of the New Testament. That's not how Paul and the other apostles and everyone else lived. It's an announcement. The gospel is an announcement to others about the good news about Jesus who completely transforms your life. And if I'm too loud this morning, I'm sorry. Completely transforms your life and your values and how you see the world and how you see your marriage and how you see your parenting and you see everything. It completely transforms you so that you are different and everybody can see that you are different because Jesus has changed you from the inside. Oh, no, I'm a private person. No, come on. Let the gospel shape us and transform us from the inside out so that everybody can see just by how we live that we are different. Come on. This is the good news of Jesus. And so I challenge you this morning that every area of your life will come under the Lordship of Christ. How you live and work how you uh, conduct your friendships, how you conduct yourself sexually, that if there's stuff you need to repent of, you repent of it and you get on and put Jesus at the center of your sexual relationship. He is the Lord of all. Come on, if you are living with someone that you're not married, repent. If you're into pornography, repent. Change. The gospel changes every area of our lives, every area of our lives. Oh, aren't you too strong? Don't be so strong. No one will like you. I don't care. <laughs> Jesus is worthy of our praise. And how do I live my life? My life must be a life of praise that shows that he is Lord in every area of my life. Come on now. It might not be comfortable, but it's the good news. And once you embrace the good news of Jesus, you are set free and everything changes. Your whole life. And nothing is the same ever again. And that's good news. The old is gone. The new has come. We are new creatures, new humans in Christ Jesus, once Jesus comes and lives in our hearts, and that changes everything. Amen. Let me pray for you. And I really encourage you that you would go and read and study 1 Corinthians this year, and do it with us section by section, chunk by chunk, and let God speak to you about those things in your own life. Amen. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that your heart is always towards us. And thank you that you're always wooing us. You're always drawing us to yourself. 
that you want to change us and make us more like Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that no one would leave this place this morning feeling weighed down or burdened by anything that I've said. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring life and liberty and freedom. That as we put our trust in you, you would continue to change us and shape us and mold us and make us into the people that you want us to be. If there's someone here this morning that has never made a commitment to the living Lord Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to do that. If you know the areas of your life that you are powerless to change, that you've tried for years and years and you just can't get victory, you can't overcome these things, then I want to point you to the source of power, the source of, of victory over sin and death, Jesus. And he says that if you put your trust in him and ask him to come and be part of your life and you invite him to come and live and make his home in your hearts, he will begin to transform you from the inside out by the power of his spirit and help you in areas of your life that you are powerless to change yourself. And this is called living by faith, walking by faith. And I would love to pray with you if there's anyone here this morning. Just a very simple prayer. And you want to pray this after me. Jesus, I need your forgiveness in my life. I ask you to forgive me for the sins that have displeased you and hurt other people. I ask that you'd come and you'd live inside of me in the, the house the home of my heart, that you would come and make a home within me, that you would set me free from my past, that you would give me a whole hope and future that I haven't even dreamt of, that you'll teach me to walk in obedience to who you are. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that as I do this now, that you make me immediately right with God as my Father, that I can know him, and that he can show his kindness in my life, continue to shape me. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to worship. We're going to ask the guys to lead us just as we finish our time this morning. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. Please come and speak to me afterwards. If you, if you need prayer for any other area of your life, if you're struggling in any area, or if you just want someone to stand with you in terms of some of the things that you challenges that you're facing, I want to ask that you'd come forward. At the end, we have a beautiful prayer team that will pray with you, stand with you, encourage you. And I ask now that Jesus would seal these things in our in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I hope you're encouraged, all right? I hope you will live this year passionately without uh, stress or anxiety, just allowing the Holy Spirit to make you more and more like Christ, that victory will come in every area of your life and in my life. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship together.
sing together. I'll put my We bless you, Lord, and we bless you. Thank you that you are our firm foundation. Thank you that we can build our lives on your, your love that is unchanging, that you love us through every situation, through every season, no matter where we are, no matter what we have done, you love us. Thank you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. Amen. We really want to invite you to stay for some tea or coffee in our coffee area. And uh, I hope that you can just get to say hello to each other and wish each other a happy new year if you haven't seen each other. And uh, we look forward to um, a great week ahead and we'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Um, ladies, sorry, uh, the rain seems to be playing havoc with our, our loos in the ladies section, so maybe you want to use more the disabled loos. Um, this seems to be... Sorry, hold back. Okay. Hold back the river. Okay, great. See you guys, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you over coffee. Thank you.